right, praise God. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me tell you why we're not diving into Advent this week, because we normally preach about five weeks of Advent intently. Um, this week, I wanted to take one more week to talk about marriage. And as you, you heard me last week, I want to talk about marriage because marriage is severely under attack, not just in the life of our church, but just period. When we think about marriage and when we think about people that are struggling, uh, they're struggling in our church, they're struggling outside of our church, so much so that last week I preferenced preference my message by saying, this may sound like I'm talking about you, but I'm not talking about you. I'm just talking about marriage in general, and so many people are struggling that when I talk about struggling marriages, people immediately think I'm talking about them. And no, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about so many people like you. That's how many people are struggling in marriage. Me and my wife have the testimony of that. I told y'all last week that we spend more time, it seems like in, this, in these days, doing marital counseling than we do any other type of counseling, period. Period. We are part-time church planners, part-time marriage counselors. That's how much marriage counseling we are doing because marriage is under a significant amount of pressure and a significant amount of struggle in our day and in our particular context and in our particular hour. And so I want to talk, because of that, I want to spend another week talking about marriage as we're marching through 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Lord in his sovereignty just gave us this chapter. And I want to deal with this chapter a little, bit, a little bit longer before we take a break and we start talking about Advent on next week. Is that all right? Amen. 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 So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 16 is where we're going to pitch our tent. Last week, we turned our attention to issues that, that, that it seems the Corinthians actually wrote Paul about in an earlier letter because in, because in this chapter, he turns his attention to those issues beginning with the words in, in verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And right out of the gate, Paul starts with marriage. Not sure why he started there in this moment in history with this church, but if they were anything like us, then he would have started there because the institution of marriage was under such fierce attack from every single side. And Paul begins his response to their letter by responding to their statement we find in verse 1. They told Paul, hey, it is not good for a man to touch a woman. And so Paul responds to them saying that or them holding that belief. Now, last Sunday, we discussed a few possible ways that this kind of thinking could have actually um, ended up showing up in the Corinthian church. One way was an over-exaggerated preference to sexual celibacy and abstinence. Single people resisting marriage, not because they didn't long for those relationships, but because they had began to view sexual relationships, even in marriage, as a burden to be avoided. Sexual immorality had grown so terrible and had become so rampant in their culture that they said sex is just not good, period. It's not good for us to do whether we're, whether we're single or whether we're married. And so that's, po that's possible something that was going on in, in Corinth. Also, married people were even withholding sexual intimacy from one another. 
even though it was given to them as a good gift to be enjoyed for their satisfaction and their union and even their sexual uh, sanctification. In fact, in verse 7, this is what Paul says, responding to this way of thinking. You got some people saying it's not good whether it's married, whether you're married, single, it's not good. And, and, and so, hey, I'm married, we shouldn't be doing it. Hey, I'm single, we shouldn't be, or I, I don't need to be married, or I'm married, I need to be single. To that, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another kind. Paul in his own way is saying that if God has gifted you for lifelong singleness, then embrace that singleness. If God has gifted you where you treasure a spouse and a family, you don't have to apologize for that. But whether it's a life of singleness or a married life you desire, remember that it is a gift that Christ gives. In other words, it's not ultimate. Christ is ultimate, not your marital status. So, so he is sufficient no matter where you may find yourself, whether single, whether married, he is sufficient. And because he gives a gift, that means that your hope should not rest in that gift. Your hope should rest in the giver of the gift. Does that make sense? Whether you're single, whether you're married, he gives the gift for that season, and it's not ultimate, he is. However, this was not the only dangerous misunderstanding threatening marriages in Corinth, which is where we turn our attention to this morning. The threat of divorce appears to have also been extremely significant. Christians divorcing Christians, Christians divorcing unbelievers. A quick side note here, notice that in a society like Corinth, one that is captive to sexual immorality, divorce is also going to be an issue to confront. Now, of course, hypersexuality is not the only issue driving divorce in this context, nor is it the only issue driving divorce in our context. For example, you have the misunderstandings around success and what that looks like. You have the struggles around emotional healthiness in couples. You have the unhealthy esteeming of one's own personal happiness as the ultimate good and the ultimate value above everything else that drives them to say, well, if I'm not happy, then I can't stay. And I'm not going to try to be, work on being happy. I'm just going to leave because my, what's important is me being happy, point blank, period. So you got a lot of factors that are contributing to our culture of divorce. However, make no mistake about it, a, so a society that is so overwhelmed with sexual immorality that it unknowingly shapes and influence, influences our ideas and our philosophies and our preferences and our imagery is most certainly going to also naturally struggle with divorce which is why you hear so much about sexual immorality in this book and you hear about divorce because they, in many, many ways, they, they can go hand in hand at times. You see, with the increase of sexual immorality and sexual misunderstanding in a culture comes all the time without failure, the, de the devaluing of marriage and the objectifying of one another as things to be mishandled and mistreated rather than gifts to be cherished for the glory of God. See, an over-sexualized culture will always, listen, always be a divorcing culture. 
in a non-marrying culture because when sex is taken out of, taken out of its context of God-glorifying, Christ-centered, self-sacrificing marriage, the whole experience becomes diminished. The whole experience becomes devalued. And then attitudes crop up like, if I'm not happy, then we shouldn't be together, period, point blank. No, I'm not going to try to work it out. I'm not happy. Or if I'm not satisfied, we can't be together, point blank, period. Just think about how much influence social media, TV sitcoms, movies, talk shows, and just celebrities in general and regular life seem to have on our sexual ideas and our philosophies about sex. So much so to the point that we totally reshape our marriage beds before we ever get in them because we bring all of those experiences into the beds with us. You even have committed Christians out here professing their love for Christ while declaring that it's okay to fornicate or experience sex with a person that they're dating so, you know, you can determine whether you're, 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 you're compatible. Because how can you determine that without this? But saints of God, that's not influenced by the Bible. That's influenced by the world. Honestly speaking, if we are, if we weren't rather, so inundated with so many ungodly expectations concerning sex by our culture and by our own unhealthy and sinful experiences that, we, that we've had, whether those experiences come through our own sin or even more tragically, and I want to be sure that you, you hear me here, even more tragically whether they come through someone else's sin upon us in some form of abuse because that shapes it too, all right? Sometimes how we're shaped has nothing to do with us, but, what was, but rather what was done to us. Do you understand? You tracking with that? But nevertheless, our ability to experience intimacy together with our spouse wouldn't be nearly as challenging and nearly as difficult if it wasn't for all the experiences that we're being shaped by in the culture and even in our own lives, whether it be our sin or the sin that someone has laid upon us in their abuse of us. You see, sex and marriage is in part war because of our war with the flesh, our war with the world, and our war with the devil. So sex, sex and marriage is in part war on the inside, right, with us, with one another as a couple, as we think through this and we navigate this, but it's also war on the outside because we got all these influences that we're bringing in, the flesh, the world, and the devil that are shaping how we think about it. Sometimes that happens before marriage. Sometimes that happens during marriage. We're still being shaped by the world in terms of how we should think about our intimacy. Does that make sense? You see, God-glorifying, Christ-centered, self-sacrificing marriage and intimacy was intended to be a unique experience with very few impressions from the outside world. It was intended to be a fresh 
and vibrant discovery between two God-fearing people, an experience that is constantly evolving as the spouses invest in one another, learning to give up their own will for the will of the other, even in the marriage bed. It was created as an experience for two spouses to enjoy alone with their own experiences together being the primary means that they use to grow and deepen their intimacy. Not dragging all of these experiences from outside and from this culture and from this group or from this talk show or from when I was with so-and-so. Not dragging all of that in there, but learning and sharing and, and sacrificing together. That's what intimacy was intended to be. Does that make sense? And obviously, that's not our culture. And as a result, this is at least one problem we face in our fight to keep our marriages good and healthy. But that's not the only problem, as I said. See, Paul offers instruction about divorce to two separate groups of people in this text. I want to start by identifying those two groups. First, to the married. Paul says in verse 10, married people, easy enough. However, in verse 12, there is a subgroup that Paul introduces. He says, verse 12, to the rest I say, and the question is, who's the rest? He continues, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, verse 13, if any woman has a husband, who is an unbeliever. So we have two groups now, married folks, and then a subgroup of married folks, the rest, married believers who have spouses who are not believers. Here's a quick question. Why does Paul feel the need to distinguish between these two groups? In verse 10, he addresses the married couples, both husband and wife, who are believers, Verse 12, he directs his attention only to the believing spouses who are married to unbelievers. Why is that? Well, because Paul doesn't spend his time addressing unbelievers about the conduct that believers are called to. He's not giving guidance to non-Christians on how to live out the Christian life. Here's another question. Does Paul believe that unbelievers are incapable of honoring their spouses and treating them faithfully? Is that why he doesn't address them? No, of course not. There are unbelievers that, that love their spouses far better than many of us, myself included. There are unbelievers that honor their spouses far better than many of us, myself included. So that's not what Paul is getting at here. What's going on there? This is not about Paul being elitist. Rather, it gets at one of the things that I talked about last week. When you talk about marriage, when you talk about giving yourself away in the most vulnerable ways possible, which, which, is, which is what intimacy is, when you talk about fighting tooth and nail to stay together, which, which is what we're talking about now in terms of dealing with divorce, Paul is saying there is something that is separating you from the believer. Your foundation, your motivation, 
and your power are all different. What is your foundation? What God has joined together, let no man separate. In other words, my foundation is I am here because the triune God has placed me here. That's what I believe. That's what I believe about the 18 years of my life as of November the 8th of this month. That's what I believe about the 18 years of my life that I've spent with my wife in, in, in holy matrimony. That I believe we have been put together because God himself has established it. And if he has established it, then I'm going to fight with everything in my being to ensure that I do not separate. You see what I'm saying? That I do not, that I do not drive a wedge into that. That's my foundation. But what is my deepest motivation? My deepest motivation to stay in my marriage, like we talked about last week, should be to serve and honor the one who died for me. Husbands, love your wives as what? Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Uh, wives, submit to your, to your husbands as what? As, as the church submits to Christ. In other words, we talked about it last week. When we're talking about our relationships one another, with one another, we have to look past one another first and see Christ and let that be our driving motivation for serving one another. We can't look at each other as our first motivation. That's secondary, tertiary, but primary is Christ and the gospel. Does that make sense? That's different from the unbeliever. Unbeliever doesn't have that motivation. But then also, not only is my foundation different, not only is my motivation different, but the source of my power is different. The source of my power to stay in my marriage should be the Holy Spirit who lives on the inside of us to comfort us, but to give us power to stand, even stand in marriages. You see, unbelievers don't have that source of power to pull from in the hardest moments of their marriage. So when Paul calls us to stay, Paul is thinking about the triune God who has established your marriage. He's thinking about the Savior who died for your marriage. And he is thinking about the Spirit who is fueling your marriage. All of that is at the forefront of his mind as the three primary means by which the staying is going to happen. This is what distinguishes the Christian in marriage from any other person in marriage. A real God that established it, a real gospel that changes how we see everything in life, including our marriages, and a real spirit at work in us changing our ability to endure anything in life, including our marriages. Is God shaping you that way? Is that truth that what God has established, let no man separate, is that driving you in marriage? Is the gospel shaping you that way? Is Christ dying for you, Christ crucified for you, Christ laying his life down for you, is that in turn leading you to say, now I must lay my life down, even for the spouse in my house? Is the gospel shaping you in that way? Is the spirit shaping you in this way? When you say, I don't have anything left to go on, do you turn to the spirit and do you say, Lord, give me help by your spirit to continue to stand? Give me help by your spirit to open my ears and close my mouth. 
Give me help by your spirit to not be so selfish, to not be so self-seeking. Give me help by your spirit to lay my life down like you laid yours down for me. Paul assumes that that is what is at work in you. That's why he doesn't talk to the unbeliever about this. He's talking to us. He says, because this is what's going on in you. I can't talk to the unbeliever. That's not what's going on in them. But this is what's going on in you, so I'm addressing you. So Paul has two audiences. He has the married Christians, and he has the Christian spouses in marital unions with unbelievers. Verse 10, he says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. The wife should not separate from her husband. What does Paul mean by separate? I'll tell you, he does not mean what we typically mean. For Paul, separation and divorce are the same thing. And so when we talk about separate, we're talking about a lesser, you know, a a, a step before the ultimate step. Paul doesn't have that step in mind here. He's just talking about divorce. Does that make sense? Paul, when he thinks about separate, he's thinking about Matthew 19 and 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Separation in 1 Corinthians 7 is a termination of the marriage. Not just a decision to spend some time apart and to sort things out. In fact, the Bible doesn't really even have much to say about that topic. So it's one that we don't have a lot of biblical guidance on, and and so it's one that we have to uh, we have to um, think about and enter into haste, uh, not hastily, but very very uh, wisely. And we should have good and godly and emotionally healthy counsel involved in that discussion when we're when we're thinking about that. Because the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about it, so to speak. It just talks about marriage and talks about divorce. But here's another statement that Paul makes. If she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. What should we take from Paul's encouragement towards reconciliation? Most marriages in our culture that end in divorce are typically considered done, irreparable, final. But Paul says, particularly in the case of a no reason, no fault divorce, which we'll we'll, we'll unpack that in just a second as to why I say that's what's happening here. Paul says in the case of no reason, no fault divorce amongst committed Christians, that is not necessarily done final. In fact, Paul says in the case of no reason, no fault divorce, like what he's seeing in Corinth, no, the marriage shouldn't even be on the mind of the divorcing party. You see that. Unless your desire is to reconcile and marry, remarry the one that you left. Does that make sense? Paul doesn't even have a category for no fault, no reason, divorces. 
Thus, the only other option for that party is reconciliation. Now, Paul makes this another statement that deserves our attention. Not I, but the Lord, Paul says. What does he mean by that? Not I, but the Lord. Paul is saying that when we're talking about marriage among unbelievers, the Lord has given us particular instruction before he departed. He's saying that what I'm sharing with you, these are words that Jesus shared with us. You have record of him saying this. You look at Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9, for example. The Bible says the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? You hear that? No fault, no reason. Just get tired of it, man. You just don't understand. You don't understand how much she gets on my nerves, right? So can I divorce her if she just, you know, just gets on my nerves? You, do you understand? Can I, can I divorce her for that? Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. You see, in this context, you had men who held the power of divorce. Now, not the Greco-Roman context, but in the Jewish context in which Jesus is speaking to in, my, in Matthew chapter 19, Men held the power for divorce. They could just get tired of you. You know, I mean, I'm just tired of looking at you. I'm tired of hearing you. I want a younger woman. They just leave. Give you a certificate, off you go, you're out of here. Jesus says, no, no. The only reason that provision was made was because of your hardness of heart. It's not because it was my will for that provision. Are you tracking with that? So the question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? The answer, no. 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 Well, what about sexual immorality? Notice that sexual immorality in this text, Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9 doesn't even show up until the very end. You know, what that, you know what that's telling you? Jesus isn't looking for outs in marriage. It's there, of course. Unfaithfulness, infidelity, of course it's there. But Jesus isn't searching for outs in marriage. Jesus' first desire is for us to navigate our difficulty. Sometimes that's not possible, especially in the case of infidelity. But that's not where he's, that's not what he's looking for, which is why it's the last thing that we read when we read about divorce. He's looking for marriages to stay intact. Particularly amongst Christians. Why? Because Christians have the foundation, the triune God has joined us together. 
Christians have. The gospel that says Christ laid his life down in order that we might lay our lives down for one another. And, the, and Christians have the power and the source of the spirit which empowers us to do this. All right, so that's Paul's message to the believing married couples. Now Paul turns his attention to the believing spouse married to an unbelieving spouse. In verse 12 through 16, he says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. But how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So here Paul is counseling, not condoning, all right? To be sure, Paul offering instructions to a Christian that is married to an unbeliever is not his way of approving of believers marrying unbelievers. Rather, what Paul is doing is dealing with what is a very real reality when the gospel hits a country for the first time or hits an area for the first time or hits a region for the first time. What happens? Married people all over the country end up being converted, but their spouses don't. Does that make sense? So now you have this married person who's converted and saying to themselves, well, if I love Jesus and I believe Jesus, am I made unholy by being with this person who doesn't love Jesus? Paul is saying, no, no, not at all. So just to be clear, Paul is giving instruction on how to handle an existing marriage. He is not giving the Christian liberty and license to marry someone who does not know Jesus. In fact, he says so in just a few verses down, and we'll talk about sometime in January, but verse 39, he says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Meaning that you're free to marry whoever you want to marry as long as that person knows Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, a very popular passage says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with darkness or with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Verses 12 through 16 then, for the unbelievers married to un or believers married to unbelievers is not meant to condone believers marrying unbelievers. Some of you ask, why not? Some of you watching online, you may be asking, well, why not? I mean, I love her, she loves me, or well, I love him, he loves me. Why not? And it is for the same reason that Paul is not talking to the unbelieving spouse in this text. You see, in marriage, the surest foundation is not your love for one another. The surest foundation is not your love for one another. The surest foundation in Christian marriage is a triune God establishing your marriage. In marriage, the surest motivation 
for your marriage is not your love for one another. The deepest motivation in a marriage for you to continue in is the fact that Christ laid his life down for you in order that you might lay your life down for one another. And in a Christian marriage, the the most potent power in your marriage is not your love for one another. It is the Spirit of God fueling you to lay your life down for one another. See, here's what happens. But we think that we can marry whoever we want to, unbelieving or, or believing, because we think that love is what? The surest foundation, the deepest motivation, and the most potent power. And it's none of that. It's none of that. Is love a part of that? Of course it is. But it's not the primary. In fact, when you make it the primary, it becomes dangerously close to idolatry. Because what ends up happening is you say, well, you know, I mean, I I love Jesus, but you don't understand Jesus. I love her. Oh, I love Jesus, but you don't understand, I love him. And so therefore, yeah, I'll abandon you for them. If they don't want to go with you, then I'll, I'll go with them over you. Why? Because I love them. And, it's, and that's my deepest motivation here. Saints of God, Paul says, no, you're not unequally yoked with unbelievers. You know why? Because your deepest motivation starts with God. He's what fuels you. He's what drives you. He's what motivates you. He's what moves you into relationship and out of them if necessary until you find the one who loves Jesus. Paul continues. He says, I not the Lord say. You know, this statement has been severely taken out of context over the years to mean that Paul is saying that everything he's about to say now should just be considered his opinion and nothing more. That is not what Paul is saying. When Paul said, I, when Paul said, not I, but the Lord, what was Paul saying? Paul was saying when Jesus was here, he talked about this, all right? You can, you can check the record. This is what he said. Now he's saying when Jesus was here, he did not talk about this, but I, his apostle, I'm about to give you some instruction on it. Does that make sense? Jesus didn't have to talk about it. Why? Because he was talking to the context of Jewish believers. Basically, all of them believe in the God of Israel. Now he's talking to a Greco-Roman group. The Corinthians, you got people that are believing. You got people that are unbelieving. You got people that worship this God. You got people that worship that God. So Paul has to speak to this group now. Does that make sense? So Paul does. He speaks to them and he says, what does he say? A couple of things. Number one, don't leave. Verse 12, to the rest I say, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Don't leave. Because what they're saying is, is listen, I, I can't be holy around this man. I can't be holy, I can't be holy around this woman. So uh, I'm going to have to leave in order to be holy. Paul is saying, no, don't leave. He says, not only, not only can you be holy, but your presence sanctifies them. In other words, they see Jesus in ways that they would never see Jesus 
unless you were present with them. See, your spiritual maturity is not defined on your own terms. Your spiritual maturity is defined on God's terms. You know, we like to define spiritual maturity on our terms. And so if we're in a marriage that doesn't have a believer as a spouse, then we'll say, well, I'm just not on his level. I'm not on her level. Or I just can't grow in God with them. Or I got to leave. Or, or he, you know, they're keeping me from getting to another level in God and all these other things. But if you haven't learned yet... God uses the tensions and the frustrations and the struggles that we experience to shape us and mold us into his image and likeness, which means that it could very well possibly be that marriage with that spouse that God uses to kill your flesh and mature you in the things of the Spirit. He could be using that marriage with that man or that marriage with that woman to move you towards him. He says, don't leave. Second thing he says is live holy. Live holy. For the unbelieving husband, verse 14, is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. This is not implying that everyone in the house is saved because of the presence of the believing spouse, all right? But what it is implying is that the presence of God is there because a child of God is there. You see, the family in which a believer lives and resides, that family has a greater opportunity to be a believing family because of the presence of that one believer in that family. One of my best friends lived in a house with a believing grandmother. His father was in the world. Mother was in the world. He was called by God at an early age through the testimony of a believing grandmother. The believing spouse sanctifies the house. Their presence provides God, uh, provides opportunities for God's grace to be demonstrated and displayed. And their, their presence provides opportunities for God's blessing to be showered upon that family. Sodom and Gomorrah, remember, Sodom and Gomorrah, God was negotiating with Lot. And Lot was saying, hey, you know, was, I mean, they, they were negotiating, hey, if there be one, if there be, I mean, if there be 50, if there be 10, you find me 50. Okay. I'll spare the whole city for 50 righteous. I'll spare the whole city for 10 righteous. Are you, are, you, are you tracking with that? I'll spare this house for one righteous in this house. One who's standing, one who's praying, one who's seeking my face. I'll spare this house for that one. That spouse is sanctifying the house. Peter tells us that we have the ability, wives, he says, 
be subject to your own husband so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. What does Peter say? He's saying that that husband has the potential to be won by the holiness of that spouse. Spouse doesn't even have to say anything. But if that spouse is laying their lives down routinely, if that spouse is serving with all that they have, if that spouse is loving deeply, if that spouse is living with grace and mercy and showering their spouse with grace and with mercy, then God can, God can open the eyes of that spouse to see things that they had never seen before, nor would they not have seen had it not been for the spouse that was living in the house with them. Live holy. And then finally, Peter says, I mean, Paul says, rather, let go. Verse 15, but if an unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Here's where a little controversy normally ensues. What does it mean to not be enslaved? And Peter says, Brother or sister, you're no longer enslaved if the unbelieving spouse separates from you. If he divorces you, he leaves you. It simply means that you're free to remarry. Free to re remarry, provided you marry a, a believer. And he says, you don't have to force that. You don't have to fight that. And the reason Peter says you don't have to force that and fight that, he says, because how do you not, how, you don't know if you will be able to save your husband or your wife. That's what he says. You don't know. So if they, if they say, hey, I'm out, and you fought, Peter says it's okay. I mean, Paul says it's okay to let go. Now, here's an interesting take. Flip that on the other side for the singles. Let that sink in what Paul just said. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, so many times in single life, we find unbelieving husbands or unbelieving uh, um, girlfriends, unbelieving boyfriends, and we tell ourselves that, hey, they've been going to church with me for a little while now, right? So, I mean, you know, just go ahead and do this thing. I'm ready to get married, and they going to church a little bit, so, you know, they'll eventually come around. Because I'm there. Mm-mm. Jesus has been there. You're not Jesus. Wait on Jesus to save them. If Jesus hasn't saved them, you will not either. Let Jesus save them. Are you tracking with this? Paul says, you do not know whether you will save. So don't take that much confidence in your ability to save. It's God who saves. Amen? All right, we're 43 minutes in. <sighs> Had a lot to, lot to get off my chest this morning, y'all. Sorry about that. Let me say this. I said that Paul is dealing with no-fault divorce. In other words, he's dealing with a context of people that are basically saying, hey, I'm just not in love anymore. Sorry, I'm out. You know, or I love somebody else now. Sorry, I'm out. He's dealing with all these types of things. Jesus is even dealing with that. Remember, they came to Jesus and they said, hey, do we divorce for any reason? 
Can we divorce for any reason, for no cause? And that content is extremely important. This is what one theologian says about it. He says, in the context in which we're dealing with, Paul is clearly dealing with people who are asking about whether they should divorce their spouses on grounds that Paul considers unacceptable. And thus, he tells them that they should not do so. Paul stands with Jesus in holding, their, holding that divorce may be justified only where one partner clearly manifests a radical refusal to respect one's marital commitments and maintain the fundamental integrity of the marriage, end quote. What is he saying here? He's saying that Paul is not trying to address every single circumstance in which a partner is permitted to leave. Here's what I mean. If someone is physically abusing their spouse, I have heard it often said, well, I mean, there's nothing in Scripture that says that, that, that they, they can leave under those circumstances. To that, I would say, that was not Paul's intent. In fact, the Presbyterian Church has taken the stance of considering abuse to be a form of abandonment the type of abandonment in which we've just read. And, and abandonment in, sen in the sense of what this gentleman just said, this theologian just said, where one clearly manifests a radical refusal to respect one's marital commitments and maintain the fundamental integrity of the marriage. In other words, they're beating you, they're, they're abusing you. And so in that case, yes, you are absolutely, positively, 100% permitted to leave. In that case, as we have talked about here at City Light Church, you, tell, you, you report that to us and we're going to the police. Do you understand that? We're not going to weaponize our, our, our Bible and to sit back and watch someone be abused and assaulted and try to weaponize our Bible by trying to say, well, Paul didn't address that particular issue. There's so much involved in the context in which we're dealing with that Paul is dealing with no fault, no reason divorces. And that's what's driving him to say the things that he's saying. It's not it. Abuse isn't on the radar in this context. You have to understand that. And Jesus is dealing with the husbands who have the permission to leave for any reason in Matthew 19. He's not even talking to women in Matthew 19. They can't, divorce, they can't even get divorced in that context. Do you understand that? So he's addressing men that are trying to leave for any reason. And so we have to be a little bit more careful before we try to move into a place where we literally have people that are getting beaten. And we're saying, well, you know what I mean? The Bible doesn't say you can leave. It's not the context in which we're addressing. Does that make sense, folks? All right, I know I'm long-winded, but I want to say this last thing this morning. Y'all permit me to say it. Why is marriage so serious? Why is marriage so serious? Malachi chapter 2, verse 13 through 16, it says, In this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? And he says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. 
So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Marriage is not just simply a two-way covenant. Marriage is a three-way covenant between God, between man, and between woman. Marriage is not simply a physical teaming up of two people. It is a union, according to Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, a union that is joined by the very Spirit of God himself. The destruction of marriage, according to Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, leads to the destruction of godly legacies. And so these people have run into a problem. Their worship has been diminished, and they're like, hey, God, why aren't you accepting our worship? He says, look across from one another. Look at the spouse that you're mistreating. Look at the spouse that you're not loving. Look at the spouse that you're not cherishing. There's your answer. That's how serious God takes marriage. That worship just becomes motions when marriages aren't seeking unity. That singing just becomes noise when marriages aren't seeking harmony. That's how serious God takes this. And so saints of God, I know, like I said, I know I'm long-winded this morning, but I'm really trying to get to y'all this morning. This is how serious God takes the marriages that he has entrusted us to. And I know it's hard. I know it's a struggle. I know it's a challenge. But you have a sure foundation and that God has established it. You have a deep motivation in that Christ died for you and laid down his life for you in order that you might lay down your life for one another. And you have a potent power in the spirit of the living God who is enabling you and helping you. So saints of God, run to Christ for help. Lean on the Spirit for help. Talk to whoever you need to talk to. Come talk to me as long as you want to talk to me. Come talk to my wife as long as you want to talk to my wife. We'll spend as much time as we need to. Because we want to see marriages thriving in the kingdom of God. It is a reflection of God. And it speaks back to the world of our God when our marriages are thriving. Amen? Amen. Would you pray? Lord, we love you.